do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Searching for the Elon Musk of RegenEgg, a classic venture capital structure with a deep focus on regenerative agriculture and food, and why it makes sense to have both technology and consumer-focused products in the same fund. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits, and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another episode today with Mark Lewis, Managing Partner at Trailhead Capital. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Thanks for having me on. And to start with the question we always start with, how did you end up, first of all, Managing Partner at Trailhead Capital, but focusing on this investment piece of regenerative food and agriculture? I was born and raised in Denver. My father was in the oil and gas business, selling traditional fossil fuel energy. And I went to undergraduate studies in San Diego, got in with the wrong crowd, started reading Bill McKibben and Herman Daly and natural capitalism and decided the climate crisis might be worth paying attention to and that we probably should transition to renewable fuels. So started with a biodiesel company. How did that land with your father? I don't want to open any Pandora boxes. We didn't prep this question, but now I'm curious. It has been a uh, 20-year debate, mostly friendly, sometimes heated. But thankfully, the climate science has continued to come in my direction. And How was last week for him? <laughs> or two weeks ago, sorry. We are recording this for a background. It's beginning of June, just after the Shell case, Exxon and Chevron. I think there was a, an interesting week. I think more and more folks in the oil patch are, are understanding that this transition is inevitable. And a lot of those firms are now making investments. And actually, some of them have more analysts on their renewable energy desk than they do on their oil and gas desk. So, And that's honestly, I think regenerative agriculture is where renewable energy was 10 or 15 years ago. And to me, it's the same. What makes you say that? I always keep saying that as well. Like We can learn so much from the renewable energy space, etc. But as you actually, let's go back to your story, you were in renewable energies. What was that feeling that you now see or you now recognize in terms of where we are in region ag and food? Partly, it's just that I think the big food and ag companies are now understanding the same thing that the fossil fuel companies are beginning to understand or, or understood 10 years ago, which is that they have some liabilities on their books and that they no longer have the social license to operate in the same way. And they have multiple stakeholders that they're accountable to. And they you can point a pretty straight line to some of their activities and how that affects our planetary health and human health. 
and the way in which our food is grown is by and large contributing to the climate crisis and contributing to the human health crisis. Do you see like we're going to have cases like Shell? Is it going to take 10, 15 years or going to be quicker with large food companies or large agriculture companies? I think it's got to be quicker. I think, you know, the UN says this is the decisive decade. I don't think we have 15 years. And I think the information is more readily available. And hopefully, big food and ag are more on the ball than big oil and gas were and recognize, okay, we if we're more proactive about this and don't always resist and instead kind of, you know, lead. And they're, I mean, JBS has made a claim that they're investing a billion dollars toward, you know, climate smart, regenerative agriculture. JBS, just for background, if people don't, it's, it's one of the largest, if not the largest meat producer, processor in the world, basically. Yeah. General Mills is transitioning a million acres to organic and regenerative practices. Cargill just made a big announcement about transitioning, to begin with, 50,000 acres of corn and soybeans to regenerative organic practices with the help of the Rodale Institute, which is a partner of ours at Trailhead Capital as well. So I think they're getting that ahead of it. And I'm hopeful. I mean, that's kind of our, to cut to the punchline, I mean, our, our strategy is that our portfolio companies in our venture capital fund get acquired by big food and big ag companies who become you know, more regenerative and you know, shift into this new paradigm through acquisition. And I think that's two, three, five, ten years away at the most. And do you see that acquisition is the most important piece or... Do you see standalone like breakout companies as well that can make it on their own with enough finance and funding, et cetera, et cetera, but like the unicorn, but not necessarily an exit to quote unquote big evil food, which of course some people will have questions about and we can ask questions about the impact. And we know acquisitions go very well or very wrong. There's not really a middle ground. Do you see that standalone scenario as an option as well? And then we come back, I promise people listening, we come back to the story of biofuels where we left off this rabbit hole. But do you see that standalone as an option as well? As the sector is is very interesting from that perspective, like there's space to build giants potentially. Absolutely. We would be delighted if one or more of our portfolio companies, you know, IPO'd and went public and built the competitor to the established players. And I think that's very possible. And I kind of joke that we are fishing for the Elon Musk of regenerative agriculture. And people forget Elon Musk didn't start Tesla, but he sort of took it to where it is today. And so, yes, absolutely. I think there are opportunities for food and agriculture companies to become hundreds of billions of dollars valuations in a relatively short time frame. So I'm hopeful that that happens as well. Okay, now let's go back to biofuels. You, you were going to the renewable energy space, ended up on biofuels, and then, then what happened? Yeah, so the first, first job was I was cold calling restaurants, asking them what they were doing with their used cooking oil, and we were trying to turn that into B20 and B100 biodiesel. You know, we had a conversation with Suncor, which is the largest refinery here in Denver, and we did the math that if we gave them everything we had, even if we got 100% market share of every restaurant in Colorado, and gave them everything we had, it was going to be a B, B.2. So it was going to be 0.2% biodiesel blended with their petroleum diesel. So that's when I realized, okay, we got to find something that's a little more scalable. I actually went back, got my MBA in Boulder. Or open a lot of frying restaurants. Yeah, but that maybe is not. The- <laughs> exactly. More deep fry. Exactly. And then, yeah, joined up with a group called GSSG Solar. So it was the old uh, global special situations group that spun out of Sun Edison. 
My family was the first investor in the GP. I then joined the team, helped raise the first fund, raised a $46 million fund, ended up deploying all of that capital into Japan, which was not the original plan, but our timing was good with, so Fukushima obviously was devastating to the country. They took down all of their nuclear power, which was roughly 20% of their electric load, put in place what's called a feed-in tariff, which is a subsidy for solar power. And we went in and actually purchased a couple of golf courses in the Fukushima prefecture where the country club members were no longer interested in playing golf in a radioactive zone. And we put, you know, got grid interconnection and put solar panels on all the greens, fairways, tee boxes, assembled a 174 megawatt portfolio, sold that to the JP Morgan Infrastructure Fund for a great return for our for our LPs. So that was kind of my first win with my dad to say, hey, look, this is Boulder hippies. Yeah, because your family office was the first investor. I mean, then then he must have seen, ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. And we were an LP in that fund. And that was, you know, I was able to say, you know, JP Morgan's getting in this game. This isn't just for Boulder hippies. I mean, this is big business. So then, you know, kind of frankly had the realization that even if we turned to 100% renewable energy tomorrow globally, we still have a big problem of 416 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. So do you still remember what triggered that realization? Was it a, a moment or a series of events? I think I just kept reading Bill McKibben, just kept studying climate science, which is a you can get into a, a dark place if you don't turn to hopeful solutions. Yeah. But yeah, Bill McKibben honestly is is one of the bigger influences on me and his, you know, 350.org. So, you know, for those who aren't familiar, the sweet spot of human civilization for many, many, many millennia was about 280 parts per million. And that's the stable climate that allowed us to flourish. And we're now, you know, up above 400. So that's what's causing climate instability. And so that's where I started studying direct air capture, geoengineering, and ultimately landed on, wow, regenerative agriculture and sequestering carbon into soil is, you know, maybe a nature-based solution that we should give that a shot first before kind of quote unquote playing God. So convinced my family then to purchase a farm. So we bought what's now Lewis Family Farm in 2013, 354 acres of certified organic ground just east of DIA. So if you fly in and out of Denver to the east, we have two of the big green circles, you know, center pivots that you fly over there. First year, spread 80 semi-loads of compost with the objective of supercharging the soil biology. We've moved uh, more towards perennial crops, intensive cover cropping, crop rotation, livestock integration, and all you know, trying to build up soil organic matter. That's kind of been my objective out there is to prove that you can sequester carbon and potentially increase yield and or nutrient density of the crops grown in that soil. So we've you know, our bread and butter is kind of alfalfa hay, certified organic alfalfa that we sell to local organic dairies. And they pay us based on the relative feed quality, which is kind of an aggregate score of protein, carbohydrates, uh, nutrients, minerals. So you get literally paid for quality. Exactly. And our we've kind of been tracking. So as we've gone from roughly 1.3% soil organic matter on average to 25 3%, our relative feed quality has gone from 150, 180, 200. Last year we had one cutting that was 252 RFQ. So wow. 
And have you kept adding the organic material and compost or that was a one-time shot and then management or how has that been going? We've done a couple of compost applications, a couple of manure applications. There's some studies out that show that that, that has diminishing uh, returns once you sort of get to a certain level. I mean, we've also done green manure where you, you know, like a Sudan grass, other cover crop mixes that we've just plowed in. Everything just trying to get more fibrous material for the bug life, the microbes, the bacteria, the fungi to feast on. We've made some mistakes for sure. And I it, it, I wouldn't necessarily recommend my path to most folks, but it's been a journey and really rewarding when you actually do get a good harvest and, you know, and, and just to have the reward of knowing that you've sequestered. We're in the Nori pilot program. So I think very highly of that group. And they, if you input all of our data, which I've done with the help of the team at Mad Agriculture into Comet Farm, we've sequestered several thousand metric tons of CO2 equivalent out at our little farm. So that's what gives me hope is that, that this is a scalable solution. And it's just, it's a bit of a paradigm shift, but the opportunity across just the U.S., of transitioning just corn and soybean acres to a different methodology of farming is very hopeful. So how, because you could have kept doing that, buying more farms or working with more farms, raising maybe a fund to invest in farms and to, in that way, contribute to the transition of many more hectares and acres. But you decided not to do that, or maybe to do that as well as somewhere else. But in this case, to you help set up Trailhead Capital and focus on another piece of the region, food and egg ecosystem. Why and how did that come about? Yeah, great question. So concurrently, I've kind of been doing some early stage investing through our family investment vehicle. And I've kind of convinced myself over time that technology hasn't been particularly well applied to food and agriculture and started studying software, hardware, AI, machine learning opportunities in the space. And Ended up reconnecting with an old childhood family friend, Trip Wall, who had been speaking to Bobby Pels about kind of institutionalizing Trailhead Capital, which Bobby had started in 2017 as essentially kind of the venture arm of his personal uh, family office. And so the three of us and Pete Oberly joined up and formed a, a general partnership and said, let's you know go out and raise a, a proper fund and do this the old old fashioned way. And get this to where it can be institutionally investable and apply, seek out seed and series A stage regenerative food and ag companies that we can verify that soil health is paramount and that soil health results from the activity, you know, the products and services of these companies. And that's what we've been up to for the last year. So we have made our first three investments into Telesense, Vents, and Howgood, we had two out of three on the podcast. <laughs> I will link them below for anybody. If you want to hear Ethan and Frank talk about fence and how good, but walk us through those and how they connect to your investment thesis or to the different pillars, as I understood. Sure. So the three investment verticals are on farm, post farm gate or sort of supply chain, and then consumer. So we're very methodically trying to invest across the entire supply chain of food and agriculture, because our hope and our intention is that we build an ecosystem of portfolio companies that actually benefit one another. 
And we're already actually seeing that with a few of our uh, initial portfolio companies. So within the producer category or on farm, that would be, you know, vents would fall into that category. So I actually heard somebody, I don't know if Frank would approve of this, but somebody was saying, oh, vents, that's like a remote controlled cow. And it's not exactly right, but yeah, you, you essentially put a collar around the cow and you can control their movement through uh, GPS coordinates. Instead of electric fencing, just be clear, it's not that, that people say, oh, but it's sad for, I mean, it's animal welfare, etc. But in terms of electric shock they would get compared to touching the normal fence with their nose, just to be clear, it's also a, a, quite a step up from that. And of course, it unlocks an enormous amount of potential. I had a very interesting discussion with Frank on the commons, but also the amount of land you can manage and the amount of wildlife that gets stuck in fencing at the moment. Like if you remove exactly thousands or hundreds of thousands of kilometers of fencing, imagine barbed wire, the amount of animals that get stuck in there because we want to keep a cow into a certain place and grazing it not properly, let's be honest there as well. It's quite mind boggling if you start thinking about that. Well, and it's actually a Pavlovian signal. So the cows get you know several sound signals before as they're approaching the virtual fence. And then, yeah, if you're wildlife and you don't have the collar around your neck, there's no fence there. So for wildlife corridors, I mean, one of our co-investors is the Nature Conservancy, and that's one of the reasons that they love it. And yes, this is a, we think, a gateway drug to convert many, many more ranchers to holistic management, multi-paddock, you know, rotational intensive grazing methodologies, which mimics, you know, the predator-prey relationship that built the topsoil in the first place. Yeah, let's, I mean, it's something to keep repeating. Almost every paddock you see, or almost every cow or even ruminant in general you see will be grazing, will be overgrazing and understocked if you look at the land. It's very counterintuitive. Go deep into the science of grazing, you'll find a world to understand, but I can guarantee you almost any animal you see grazing, ruminant, is on a farm or is in a, in a field and is overgrazing that field and is probably understocked right. and thus missing an enormous, thus first of all, damaging the climate and thus missing an enormous opportunity to restore soils and rebuild soils in a very different way and produce a lot more food because stocking density can go way up if we do it well. Right. Yeah. One of our principles is follow the intelligence of nature. And back in the day, bison used to go in, you know, they would roam in herds of thousands, tens of thousands, tight bunches to protect themselves from predators. And yeah, you eat, they would eat a little bit of the grass. Anywhere, actually. Northern Africa was, I mean, the amount of, of deer that records show when the Romans went hunting there, like in a weekend, they shot 3,000 or something. And just to be able to have that means the number of animals we cannot even imagine were roaming the different plains of this world. Fascinating. Okay, that's a, I can see the connection to soil and region ag and, and telesense. It's much more on the food waste side, if I understand right. Right. So this is an Internet of Things hardware device, a probe and an orb that you can actually stick into a grain bin or a barge of corn or wheat or soybeans. And it gives you real-time atmospherics data and actually uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to predict grain quality along the supply chain. And don't quote me on this, but something like 30% or a large percentage of food waste actually happened between harvest and processing. So just in the storage and transport of the raw commodity, there's times where soybeans between Brazil and China, you know, an entire barge goes rancid. And you think about all of the 
sunshine and water and labor and fertilizer and chemicals <laughs> inputs yeah it's so reducing that shrinkage is you know we think a regenerative play and you know draw down Paul Hawkins update, you know, now shows food waste as perhaps the, you know, the, the greatest strategy to fighting climate change that we have and kind of low hanging fruit, so to speak. So we, yeah, Telesense is a, actually an investment that my partner Bobby Pels made back in 2018 in their series A round. And he's contributing his, that, that at his cost basis into our fund. So that's a nice little step up for our limited partners in the fund. And, you know, he was invited onto the advisory board has helped source several of the largest clients uh, or customers of, you know, the Telesense technology. And yeah, really excited about where that company's going. And then the third one is uh, How Good. And yeah, Ethan's been on the show multiple times. And so don't, I don't need to rehash that one, but really exciting transparency and traceability for food ingredients to actually drill down into what are the greenhouse gases, the, the total water usage, the animal welfare components, the social welfare, farmer dignity components, and biodiversity. I mean, how do we start drilling down into, you know, it's essentially a, a life cycle assessment alternative in a way to understanding what are the, all of the environmental and social implications of a particular ingredient in a consumer packaged good, granola bar, or oat milk or whatever it is. And so are those the three verticals? It's pretty nicely mapped. What are you missing in the space? I mean, there's so much happening. There seems so much hype around region egg and soil, et cetera, but you obviously are looking at many, many different deals. People listening, what are the gaps you see so far? What are things you would love to see? Because I understand you can probably not talk too much about the things you're currently seeing because you might be in some negotiations and we have to check in in six months or a year. But what are the things you would love to see over the next six months or love to see people building and get to a Series A at some point? Great question. Well, the only vertical we haven't yet covered is the consumer vertical. Of course, yeah. But how good, I mean... Touches that, for sure. It's not the consumer vertical, but when the consumer vertical, you mean much more literally get something into the house or into the home of, of consumers, of everyday people. That's right. Yep. And we have a partnership with the Rodale Institute, who is the architect of, along with Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's of the regenerative organic certification scheme. And we're getting an early look at companies, you know, CPG companies that are attaining ROC, bronze, silver, or gold. So you're going to literally invest in food companies. Is that very different from a technology company like Fence? I mean, it is, but do you see that fitting in the same fund and investment strategy? We do, and we are unusual in that sense, but we think that's part of the ecosystem play, we think, is that it's important to actually have portfolio companies that touch the consumer. So hopefully we don't have to edit this out, but we're about to invest in White Leaf Provisions, which is a Demeter-certified biodynamic. They were in the show as well. We had them on, I'm thinking December, but I might be wrong. I might be eating my words, but a few months ago. Yeah, Megan and Keith are doing an amazing job and we think there's a really exciting future for that company. And they are really dedicated to soil health and regenerative practices and telling that story and communicating those benefits to the consumer. We think starting with the baby food category is a no-brainer because we have a three-and-a-half-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, and I'm much more militant about what I put in their bodies than what I do even in my own. I still remember... 
Greg of Farmland LP saying organic milk is the gateway drug to anything else, because as soon as you start with that, with small children, babies, etc., then the rest follows because yeah, it's, it's really such a, and I see it in, in my environment as well. It's such a life-changing moment. And even if you were paying attention before, suddenly you turn it up a notch when, when you have to feed your children or your child. Yep. And there was here in the U.S., there was a recent Senate subcommittee report pointing out unsafe levels of heavy metals in baby foods and even several organic baby food brands. And white leaf you know, has tested well below those levels, largely because... Yeah, they get tomato stuff in Europe, right? Yeah, that's the, the ingredients come from. Exactly. Yep. So they have pristine soils and practices. So, I mean, we think the enlightened consumer moving forward will is going to pay more and more attention to make sure there's not lead and cadmium and arsenic in their baby food or any of their food. So we think white leaf provisions has a really exciting brand and competitive advantage moving forward. Their direct consumer sales are up something like 1700% since that Senate subcommittee report came out. Which could also be that they started really small, but yeah, it's still an impressive number. (laughs) They did start small. Yes. But we think that trajectory continues and, Again, transparency and traceability. We, we just think more and more consumers are waking up to the notion that you are what you eat and you are what you eat, eat, and your health is inextricably linked to what you eat. And there's room for improvement in the average American diet, that's for sure. And so to come back to the question of what do you miss? What are big spots? I mean, you've sort of covered if you sign this one all verticals or all pieces, but that doesn't mean you're done, obviously, because you're hoping to raise, I think, 50 million, five zero, and that means quite a few investments. What is it that you're not seeing enough of? Do you want to learn how to invest, or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, we hope to get to 25 to 30 investments total. Honestly, the whole carbon, carbon monitoring, carbon monetization world is exciting. And I've been singing from that song sheet for many years, but it's now, you know, there's some of us that are a little concerned that now the policy and the markets might be getting a little bit ahead of the science. So I would love to see, I mean, there's some really exciting companies out there that are doing remote sensing and that are getting closer and closer to being able to point a sensor at some ground and get carbon reading from that. Same thing with nutrient density. If and when we can have more instantaneous and really reliable data on here's the carbon content of this soil or here's the nutrient density of this kale, Coming back to your transparency question. Yeah. Uh, no, there's exciting stuff happening there for sure. But it's for sure. Yeah. It's, I mean, the carbon piece is definitely going up the hype cycle. And I mean, we've done a few interviews there, but it's very overwhelming and there's a lot of promising. And for sure, we're going to see some scandals on the nutrient density. I mean, there simply isn't a lot. I was just on a call before here on a conference actually of Pierre Wheel and Bleu Blanqueur in France doing their One Health conference, focusing a lot on inflammatory disease, COVID and others, and the role of omega-3 and omega-6 and the role of, of animal health and the role of soil. 
But it's interesting how little we talk about it. Um, of course, the, the Dan Kittriches and the Bionutrient Food Association, but that's not an investable thing yet. And, and there are others and there's so, a lot of things floating around it. But the real core question, what is this carrot? What is that carrot? Is, is still, it feels like we're earlier in that, but I am convinced that in five years, we'll have a very different discussion on this topic. And it's definitely exciting. I hope it still falls in your investment period, or maybe it will be your second fund. Maybe that's fun too. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and also, I, I mean, I think the science around the rhizosphere and how the more we're learning now about how plant roots and mycorrhizal fungi and you know the microbial community all interact. And I, I think as that science continues to advance, hopefully there are some companies and technologies or biologically inoculated seeds or something along those lines that come from those scientific advancements as well. Because I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of how soil actually functions. And the more we understand that, I think the more we can move away from subsidizing the conventional activity and move toward actually incentivizing farmers to care for the soil. Yeah, it's quite shocking how little we know and how often now, especially in the last years, research comes out that completely shocks, let's say conventional or the general public. But then when you look at, at what Elaine Ingham was doing 15 years ago, I mean, a lot of it was already known, maybe not just in, a, in 15 peer-reviewed papers, but it is really, it feels so early and so exciting, but it also means how are you going to build companies on that or how are you going to build something on it that actually contributes and not just some dead end or something we discover in two years that completely changes the direction of the mycorrhizal community and focus. So it's very exciting, but yeah, it's very tricky compared to the food brand space, etc. I mean, we know how biodynamic is functioning. We know how it's growing, etc. I mean, it's a very different beast, but not meaning it's less interesting. Right. Again, I mean, to go back to another analogy, I mean, most people thought the internal combustion engine was, that was the apex. That was how mobility was going to happen. And now the lithium ion battery and electric vehicles make the internal combustion engine look antiquated. Oh, absolutely. We rented an electric car over the last weeks and a very simple Zoe, and then you go back to a petrol one and you really think, ah, yeah, that's why we didn't do this. <laughs> this was a good reason. Like, ah, yeah, no, it makes a lot of noise and it's not smooth at all. And it's, and it's this and that. And, and, but it took 15, 20 years. I mean, I remember the first things. I remember the smallest car in here in Europe that were electric because of the battery size. And it really took a long way before you could buy your Kia or Hyundai or the Volkswagen ID3 and of course Tesla. Because it's technology why, I mean, in this case, I think it's a long road because it's implementing across many hectares and acres, but I hope we go faster. Right. But if there's an equivalent to the Tesla for, say, replacing synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, and we find something, whether it's Pivot Bio or Kula Bio or Nitricity or you know, lots of exciting companies in the space that kind of can make the internal combustion engine look silly. And, or make synthetic nitrogen fertilizer look really wasteful. And first thing we've got to do is start to price some of the externalities associated with that, which was, I mean, that was what I wrote my economic senior thesis on was we need a gasoline tax to price all of the harmful externalities associated with fossil fuels. Same thing with synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. I mean, if you actually priced in all of the harm that comes from that, yes, it has done a service of sorts to humanity and fed many, many people, but there are 
negative consequences to, to all that as well, such as the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's where we're hoping we can place capital is with entrepreneurs and companies that are creating the lithium ion battery equivalent of what's next. How else can you fix nitrogen and have plants thrive without all of the ex- negative externalities? And do you see there a role, because I'm always interested, not necessarily worried, but you see the main, let's say, proponents of a healthy soil say at some point your soil is that healthy that you don't need even like you've replaced the input, like, okay, it's artificial or it's chemical nitrogen. And now you're doing some kind of other solution that's maybe produced in a completely sustainable or let's say net zero way, but still you potentially have that impact on the soil, the negative impact on the soil. Is that potentially risky? Or is there, should it always be in that path of transition? Like at some point in 10, 15, 20 years, depending on your soil, you don't need that amount of input anymore. You maybe need it every five years. Is that company sort of going to make itself obsolete? Is that your hope or how does it work? You don't want to replace the input dependency for another input, which is way more sustainable. I'm very happy for the carbon footprint of it, but it's still an input dependency. Great question. Huge, huge question. I think there is an argument for some of these companies working themselves out of future revenues. Again, getting back to a guy named Herman Daly wrote a book called Beyond Growth and there are certain arguments for sure for what some people call a steady state economy. And until then, we have a lot of hectares to do and acres to do. Like it's definitely. not that it's, there's a, I'm not saying it's a, a near term problem, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Like, do you replace one input with something else? Exactly. Yeah. No, I have my eye on my, the final part of my career might be exploring some post capitalistic paradigms because I do come back to we live on a planet with finite natural resources and we have an economic system predicated on infinite growth. Yeah. And, and what is a natural forest grows about, what is it? 3.6 or 3.7. I heard a quote somewhere percent a year. And that's pretty much the maximal growth we potentially could do. Of course, there's a lot of degraded land or degraded farmland and underproductive, et cetera, that, but is there a plateau, which is the same argument we always have on carbon, but it always plateaus very quickly. Yeah. But it's always, also, we have a lot of space left in the bank to store carbon. It might plateau at some point, which is not necessarily a bad thing. So either innovation has to continue to outpace and use resources more and more efficiently, which is possible. And that's kind of the bet we're making with Trailhead. And I think that's a good bet for this moment in time is to say there are major resource efficiency improvements to be made, waste reductions to be made. But yeah, ultimately, do you know, does a truly regenerative future allow for the current manifestation of global markets and capitalism? I'm not sure. And returns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in the near term, I mean, I think there's so much opportunity to just do things better. And there's so much waste and so much just bad subsidies. We're incentivizing the wrong behavior through our government actions. And coming back to that point, maybe it's a different answer you want to give there. I always like to ask the question, if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing, what would that be in the icon food space? In your case, would that be the incentivization and pricing, true pricing, true cost accounting, et cetera? Or do you have something completely different? Like, I don't know, change the taste buds of everyone and taste the real ingredients or, or something like that. Whatever you feel obviously appropriate here, what would be that one thing if you had a magic wand and that power? I think my magic wand would probably be to, yeah, to price externalities and to stop subsidizing the way in which our financing mechanisms and insurance mechanisms are designed around high input monocultures of largely corn and soybeans 
is infuriating. And if you just stopped, it's the same, again, kind of going back to fossil fuels. I mean, we subsidized oil and gas and coal industries through taxpayer dollars for decades. And if, you know, I would get into all these debates with my dad and his buddies of, you know, solar and wind require subsidies and you need to be able to compete in the open market. I mean, the free market in the energy world and in the food and ag world isn't real. I mean, everything that the existing system is highly, highly subsidized. And I think if you, a lesson to be learned from the energy transition is, yes, you have to create feed-in tariffs and production tax credits and investment tax credits, but also a huge first step is to just stop subsidizing the broken system. Which we haven't done in the fossil fuel. And like we subsidize with a few billion here and there, these new guys and girls without having the uncomfortable questions, why are tens of billions every year, probably hundreds of billions going towards the fossil fuel industry? And that's still going on. And they are still losing money at the moment because we, so it's that uncomfortable question. It was much easier to support something positive than to deal with the negative part. And we should learn from that, but it's not going to be an easy conversation unless we sue them probably. Well, the other fun thing about food and agriculture is that unlike renewable energy or traditional energy, it can be delicious and you can create community around it. I mean, that was one of the things I didn't love about being in the energy world is electrons are hard to build community around. They do it with, I mean, the co-op movement, obviously, I mean, especially renewable energy, but then, yeah, it doesn't change. I mean, if I switch on this light bulb or the computer, it doesn't change a second. Just my feeling if this is coming from a coal plant far away or from a solar panel on my roof. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a very different, that's why I'm very hopeful of impact consumers can have, especially when nutrient density starts becoming more transparent, etc. because it's delicious and potentially a lot better for you. We have the opportunity to break bread three times a day and build community and recognize that we feel better if we eat this food versus that food and our body and our mind and our spirit functions at a higher level. That's what I'm excited about with food and agriculture. And I think it can put as big of a dent, if not bigger, in the climate crisis as energy or the built environment or transportation. I mean, food and agriculture accounts for roughly a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. So it's that's a big piece of the pie to be tackling. So that's where we think there's there have been more advancements in the built environment, in the transportation sector, in the energy sector. We think it's time to shine a light on improving the greenhouse gas profile of the current global paradigm in food and agriculture. So why, with all due respect, such a small fund? Like why aiming for 50 million? And it's a question I always like to ask, what would happen if you have control over, let's say a billion, let's say a lot of money in terms of investing? Is it because potentially investor interest? Is there not enough deal flow or not enough? Is there not enough quality deal flow? Is it a mix of things? What is the reason? I mean, 50 million, it's a lot of money. It's absolutely not easy to raise it. But it's also in terms of the grand scheme of things of the food and agriculture sector, it's a drop in the bucket. Like it's very, very small. And I understand the acupuncture effect of a few investments, very specific investments here and there. What made you choose to not go for half a billion or more? And, and then I will ask the question, what would you do if you had uh, access to that? Yeah. Our intention is to have over a billion of assets under management at Trailhead Capital in the next several years under various strategies. We think we will have a series of thematic funds 
centered around regenerative agriculture, but we're looking at, you know, fund two could be an infrastructure based fund or a real asset fund or more growth equity strategy. But we thought long and hard about how do we come out of the gates? And, you know, we think we're in the first inning of regenerative agriculture. So now's a good time to do seed and series A investing in place bets. Do you see that? Like, is there a lot of deal flow in that space? And do you have a lot of competition? Like, is it because the hype is going, people are starting to say all kinds of things about investing in this space? We see that in the podcast, obviously. Like, do you have to work your way into deals or is it still okay-ish to do? Yeah. Over the last nine months, we've looked at 481 distinct investment opportunities. Like, just to be clear, US, Australia, mostly, right? That's your... US, Canada, Australia, and Israel are our four geographic focus areas here in Fund One. So 400 plus is a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, so we think that's pretty good deal flow. And, you know, 126 of those sort of moved into the next stage of diligence. And 14 of those are in various stages of advanced due diligence. Three investments made, two more committed. We feel like that's a pretty good filter and a healthy amount of deal flow and a healthy amount of opportunities that we're passing on. And yes, the best deals as in any valuations are yeah valuations get out of, out of control and or it's you have to prove to the entrepreneur and the company that they should take your check and not somebody else's and we've been very fortunate thus far to have been invited into several of these rounds because of the perceived benefit of our network our subject matter expertise and we've actually been delighted that they've taken our investment and in some cases over some big name Silicon Valley shops because those groups are more generalists and don't have the on-farm experience, don't have the network that we do in this particular sector and, and thematic area. So what would you, okay, so I understand the logic of the 50 million, if you get there, obviously, but at least the logic of, of a number of tens of million investment fund and then potentially going to real estate, real assets, et cetera. So what if tomorrow morning you wake up and you have that billion under management or 10 billion, what would you focus on now as you have to invest it, let's say over the next few years, it could be any range. It could be the, the, the time horizon is completely flexible the returns as well, but they are investments. What would be your top priority list of things to put money to work? Yeah. I mean, just to put a finishing note on the previous question, I mean, 50 million is goes pretty far when, cause our seed stage investments are only a, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a piece. Series A stage investments are a couple million a piece. So 50 million stretches across 25 to 30 investments, which is statistically a good shot at having a couple of those you know, be home runs that return the whole fund. I mean, that's kind of the venture capital game is. So it's a classic, relatively classic fund in that way, right? That's right. Yep. 10 year fund life will be investing over the first three to four years, two and 20 model. We kind of thought about getting creative with how do we innovate around that structure oh i've had this conversation so many times and every time not every time often it comes back to let's in, not innovate on too many things region ag and food is already exactly quite a stretch for many investors <laughs> that's right yep yep but yeah if i had 10 billion tomorrow i mean i think i don't, I don't know if i should just name specific companies but i mean i think whatever you feel comfortable i don't want to put you in but also it's pieces of the puzzle, places that you think that should really, could be even a small part, could be lobbying. I mean, feel free to open it up. I mean, some people see that as investments as well. And definitely we don't do that enough. Sure. But where would you put it? 
Oh, I think policy. I love the idea of yeah, putting some of that to work in, as we've talked about, changing policy, stop incentivizing the bad activity and start putting, I mean, if we could put incentives, subsidies, tax credits towards regenerative practices, you know, pay farmers to cover crop, which actually is just now starting to happen here in the U.S., pay farmers to move toward no-till methodologies, pay farmers to recouple animals and use livestock integration with their cropping systems. Or set up like an activist hedge fund or something and try to do the same as it's happening with some fossil fuel majors to change board seats, etc. would be an interesting investment as well. But sorry, you were going to name companies. I don't want to take you away from that if you have not changed your mind. What would you do with 10 million? I think you could say let's recruit executives and leadership from other industries and put them to work in food and ag and say, you know, here's like the Theo mentorship, but then in for, for regenerative ag, that's interesting. Yeah. Say here's, you know, put together a dream team, fund it with hundreds of millions of dollars and say, go solve this problem. Go solve the synthetic nitrogen fertilizer problem. Go solve the remote sensing carbon verification and measurement problem. Go solve the herbicide, pesticide dependency problem. Throw a couple hundred million dollars at Dan Kittredge and, and advance the ball substantially on understanding nutrient density in our food. Throw money. I mean, this wouldn't be as much of a, an investment opportunity, but at the scientific community and at researchers who better understand the rhizosphere and how plants and the microbial community really interact and, and glean those insights. And, and I mean, from that, I think you for sure could see some startups come out of that new intellectual discovery. My hope is that we're just at the beginning stages of understanding how nature actually is interconnected in every way and how we can actually farm more resiliently and more profitably by harnessing those natural systems and those natural methodologies instead of trying to, you know, we've bet on man outsmarting nature, which to a certain extent has worked remarkably well. But I think we're now understanding the negative side of that. And I'm excited to see where we can go as a society and a global community if we harness the intelligence of nature and begin to create products and services and markets and methodologies around that instead of trying to dominate nature. Yeah, I think we're starting to learn that nature is running a marathon and we, we are just sprinting. And this is a long game we're playing. I think it's, what is it, 3.9 billion years of R&D that the biomimicry community keeps throwing at us and they're right. This is a very different timescale we're playing on and we're just starting to understand. Obviously, most indigenous tribes, etc., knew that and know that and knew that since forever and we just forgot it. For sure. Some of this is we just need to rediscover from our ancestors, for sure. And it's a nice segue into my final question. What do you believe to be true about regenerative agriculture that others don't? Like, Why are you contrarian? Definitely inspired by a question that John Kempf always asks. Yeah, I was about to just, I, th I think another John Kempf quote is, nature doesn't make mistakes. I was just about to say that as well. I think it's all about healing. I think regenerative means healing and we need to heal our bodies. We need to heal our society and our institutions. We need to heal our planet and natural systems. And to me, soil is the only place where you can find all that healing in one place. And 
I guess that's, I mean, I don't know if that's... It's a perfect answer. Too contrarian. No, I mean, that, how can you be too contrarian? That's like a, that's impossible. Yeah, that to me is why I'm dedicating my myself to regenerative agriculture. Is I, I think we are in need of healing and, and soil uniquely can heal planetary health and human health in one fell swoop if we do it right. So that's the way I do it. Thank you so much, Mark, for your time. It's a perfect end of this interview. Probably not the last one we do. I'd love to check in to see the other investments you've made by then and, of course, to follow the fundraising. But thank you for now, for your time and all the work you do. Yeah, thank you, Kuhn. My pleasure. Thanks for all that you're doing to advance the ball in regenerative agriculture as well. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.